0: We are in a series called uh, Something More, going through the book of Ecclesiastes, an Old Testament book that really looks at uh, a lot of the different issues that we have in life, frustrations we have, irritations we have, uh, complaints that we have, problems That we have. And and it really gets at this idea that in life, most of us are looking for something more when it comes to every different area, whether that's relationships, we we long for something more there, or uh, the pursuit of meaning in our life, we long for something more there, or the different uh, things that we go to for happiness, we long for something more there. Or today, what we're gonna talk about that I think most of us long for something more in is money. And so that's uh, one of the areas that we uh, think about all the time. Money is something that whether it's business or family or politics or uh, career or just kind of the, the market, that we think about money all the time. I mean, money is something that is continually on our thoughts. If you just look at kind of trending news, and this was some stuff a few days ago, just, these are just like the top headlines that were out there, why millennials aren't saving money for retirement. Maybe you say Yes, that is correct, or uh, this was Huffington Post, uh, the top two trending topics, one of them was the social psychology behind fashion, which is very interesting, Uh, or as a professional investor, here's why I avoid trends. Uh, from the Denver Post, this was a couple days ago, the top trending things. One of them was 100,000 uh, Powerball tickets sold in Loveland, Canadian Space Technology Company to buy Digital Globe for $2.4 billion. Thousands of Colorado's part-time workers want full-time jobs. So all, all of that is just saying, man, money is something that's on our mind all the time, right? It's something that whatever area of life it is, whether it's your personal relationships or a business standpoint, money is continually on our minds. It's something we're thinking about all the time. And even if we're not trying to think about it, you come to church and I'm making you think about it, right? It's just, it's something that's on our mind nonstop. And here's something that you and I know about money, okay? I don't think this is going to be a, a big revelation to anybody, but money, as many people have said, is something that can't buy happiness. So this is something, even we think about money all the time, but, but here's something we know about money, that money can't buy happiness. The New York Times uh, last year, I had an article saying more money, more success, more stuff, don't count on more happiness. This little uh, graph that they pretend is on a napkin saying, we think that uh, well our happiness quotient will grow, but the reality is it stays the same. Or the Huffington Post had an article that came out a couple years ago talking about this 75-year-long study that Harvard uh, did uh, that found the secrets to a fulfilling life. And one of the things they said in there is that the grant studies findings echoed those of other studies that acquiring more money and power doesn't correlate to greater Happiness. And the book of Ecclesiastes that we're looking at today says something very similar. It says this in uh, the opening part that we will look at. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So he's talking about there's. you're looking at all the different corruption that happens with money, and he says, yep, it filters down from one person to the next person to the next person, and don't be surprised that that people are always searching for money. And then he takes it kind of out of uh, the big picture and says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So Everybody knows this, right? I don't think this is a new idea for you. I don't think coming in here today, you go, oh my gosh, money won't buy happiness. I I can't believe it. That's something that most of us know, right? That across various fields, whether that's psychology or business or religion, I mean, everybody talks about and agrees with the fact that money can't buy happiness, okay? So we agree with that. I don't think you're surprised by that. But here's an interesting thing why then are we still so gripped by money? I mean, if that's true, and if we know that, if we know that money doesn't buy happiness, and if we know that money doesn't create the happy life, why is it something that we are still gripped by? Why is it something that we are still emotionally so attached to? Because Though everybody agrees that money doesn't buy happiness, would you look at our world and say, yeah, that's reflected in our world? Nobody thinks that money buys happiness. I mean, let's just look at some things that is true of our world, that the lottery in America, Americans spend each year $70 billion on the lottery. Now, maybe you uh, participate in that and maybe you don't. That's more money than on books, video games, tickets for movies, sporting events, combined, that Americans spend $70 billion on the lottery. And maybe that doesn't relate to you, but, but what about this? Credit card debt. The average American household debt is $5,700. Uh, 38.1% of all households carry some sort of credit card debt. And I find this graph very interesting. This is people's income on the bottom. And other than people that make negative money or zero money, which is over here, those people spend the most on credit card debt, Oh, I feel like a weatherman right now, but over here, um, we've got the cold front moving in that's going to make you poor. Um, but over here, look, it doesn't really change that much. $8,000 in debt, if you, if you make $500,000 and over, um, if you make between a dollar and $5,000, there's $4,000 in debt. There's not a big change in how much debt there actually is, no matter how much you make, but here's what that says. Everybody thinks, I need just a little bit more money doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are. Everybody thinks, I need just a little bit more money. But don't we all know money doesn't buy happiness? Then why do we think, if I had just a little bit more money, and then you, and then you make it. And if I had just a little bit more money, and then you make it. And if I had just a little bit more money, and then you make it. Why, why is that? Or, or here's, here's another one that uh, CNBC, a, a 2015 survey by the American Psychological Association, found that the money is the leading cause of stress among Americans. So if you're stressed out in your life, likely it has something to do with money. So we look at our world and we say, man, is it reflected that we believe money doesn't buy happiness? Is that reflected in our world? We spend 70 billion dollars trying to get more money, trying to get rich. Is it reflected in our lives? Look at the credit card debt. Is it reflected in our lives? What do you stress about? Or maybe we even believe that God, it comes to more of a religious standpoint, God wants me to be wealthy. This one's a little bit more humorous. But a Florida man, this was a couple weeks ago, Florida man says he stole $7 billion, which that's a skill that might be interesting, uh, because Jesus wants him to be wealthy. And I love their little line. I don't know if you can read this, but it says, Jesus may be a savior, but he's a terrible alibi. And then this too, it says, investigators said, Haskew told them he believed his wife's transfer scheme would allow him to obtain the wealth that Jesus Christ created for him and that belonged to him. Jesus was unavailable for comment on the matter, (laughs) however. (laughs) And though you may not have stolen $7 billion, don't we sometimes think that way about God? God wants me. Money doesn't buy you happiness, sure, but God, don't you want me to be happy? I'd like a little more money. Or this, this was a couple weeks old as well. Uh, There's a fortune hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. This kind of hits home. And this millionaire is the only one who knows where it is. So there's this 86-year-old guy, Forrest Fenn. Uh, If you know him, uh, you can give him my email address. And he uh, hid a fortune in the Rocky Mountains. It's like a couple million dollars, and it's still there. It hasn't been discovered yet. He hopes the hunt will encourage families to spend outside time together. And... uh, (laughs) Some of you are like, I'm going to take up hiking. That's what we're doing right after this. He says this, read the clues in my poem over and over and study maps of the Rocky Mountains, he said via email. Try to marry the two. The treasure is out there waiting for the person who can make all the lines cross in the right spot. Now, here's why I did this one. How many of you right now, as you see that, are like, ooh, wow, I need to get a mountain bike. I need to get a backpack. See, we, we don't think that money can buy happiness or the, or the studies say that money can, can't buy happiness. And we know that. That's not new to us, but is that reflected in our world? Is that reflected in our credit card debt? Is that reflected in our stress of what we stress about? Is that reflected in even how we view what it would be if God were to bless us? Is that reflected even when we read something like that in the Rocky Mountains? And I got to be honest, even when I read that this week, I was like, mm, interesting. Just read the poems and just read. I, I'm smart. I can figure it out. Is that reflected? Like, if you think about your own life, how much do you stress about money? Or how many of your decisions revolve around money? Or here's just another, here's just another question. Would your life be better if you had more money? Uh, that's getting at the same type of thing, of happiness. Would your life be better if you had a little bit more money? Just a little bit more. Would your life be better? See, all the studies say that money doesn't buy happiness, but even though we've heard that, even though we would probably say that ourselves if we were trying to tweet and sound philosophical, do we really believe that? Why is it that though we know that, it still has such a grip on us? Why is it that though all the different fields of study agree on that, it still has such a grip on it? Wouldn't it be awesome? If money wasn't an issue for us, wouldn't it be awesome if you and your spouse or or, or other people in your life didn't fight about money? Wouldn't it be awesome if you didn't worry about your kids future and the kind of money or financial situation that they would have? Wouldn't it be awesome if you weren't stressed about needing to get kind of that next promotion to be able to have a certain amount of money? Wouldn't it be great if you weren't comparing to other people's money and if what they had was fair to what you had? Or wouldn't it be great if you weren't always checking, for those of you that do this, the stocks or your 401k and how it's doing? Wouldn't that be great if we could actually buy into the fact that money doesn't buy happiness? Something that everybody says, something that we've heard a thousand times, something that we would say that we agree with, and yet it has a grip on us. It's a very powerful grip. And As we explore the rest of what the author of Ecclesiastes says about this subject, he's going to help us understand why it's so powerful. Why it's so powerful, and and even how we can be free from this grip. So here's our first question. Why is the desire for money so powerful? How come? Though we know all the different stats, though we know it, why is the desire for it still so powerful? And and here's what we're going to look at. He's going to go through several different situations of, of really what we think money will do for us and how it ends up failing us. So I'll read it, and then we'll talk about these three things. Here's what he says in 5, 11 through 17. When goods increase. They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Talking about be able to give him. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came So why is the desire for money so, so powerful? And he kind of talks about three different situations where money goes wrong. And, and we can see underneath that that there's these longings of things that we think money will give to us, but then ultimately it doesn't. So here, here's the first one that we think money will do for us. We think it'll solve our problems. Now that's a you know, very large category, but we think money will really solve our problems whatever the problems are that you have if if you want if, if problems frustrate you whatever that is and you want it to be a little more comfortable in your life and we can think if i just had a little bit more money then the problems would be solved. Maybe it's a space issue. So if I had a little more money, my, my house could be a little bigger. I could renovate this part of my house. If I had a little more money, I could have a little bit better car. If I had a little bit more money, the, whatever the different problems are that, I, that I'm kind of bothered by that are irritating me, if I just had a little bit more money, and usually that's how we think, right? It's not, if I just had a million dollars, then it's usually if I just had 3,000 more, I just had four just that's all I'm asking 4 grand. That's not that much, right? If I just had a little bit more my problems would be solved. But what he says is interesting. He he says that that where where there's money there where there's more money, there's more mouths to feed. And for those of you that are parents, you can say amen, right? Where there's, where there's more mouths to feed, it ends up costing more money. And when you have more money, it leads to, as Biggie said, more money, more problems, right? That's the truth. More money, more problems. Often because other people want it from you. Oftentimes, the more money you have, the more people that want it from you. So we think it's going to solve our problems if I have a little bit more money, but it ends up creating more problems. Now there's more taxes and there's more people that expect, hey, you should, you've got money, you should be able to help me with this, you've got money, you should be able to get me a little bit nicer present, you've got money, you should be able to, that the more money you have, we think it'll actually alleviate our problems, but it often creates more complication, creates more problems, whether that's relational problems of more people that are wanting it, which is part of what he's talking about, or just the management of it, or the complication of keeping it, and keeping it legal, and keeping it all in line, that more money, though we think, it'll alleviate problems, often creates more problems. Even just this, people talk about going house poor, right? You buy a house because you've got enough money, and so now you can buy a house, but now it's creating more problems of, well, I can't really afford anything else, and now I've got to, and I had more money so I could buy the house, and now I've got to get more money to be able to fill the house with the right amount of furniture, and the right amount of stuff, And, and now I've got to fix stuff, and now I've got to pay for people to come and do things, and that doesn't mean don't buy a house. It's It's just saying that more money, we think, often will alleviate our problems. But the life that comes with more money often actually complicates our problems. So one of the things that we think that money will do for us is solve problems, but it usually actually doesn't. And second thing that we long for money to give us is a sense of peace. How many of you are anxious about money? And if I had a little bit more money... I would be able to sleep better at night. If I had a little bit more money, I'd have a little more peace. How many of you at night time, you, you begin to think about, will I get that promotion or will I get that job or, or will this work out or how much is this going to cost me? And if I just had a little bit more money, I'd have some peace in my life. But, but you know what he says? He says the laborer, talking about just kind of like a blue-collar guy, not making that much money, the laborer, he says he, he sleeps good at night. He doesn't have that much money. He sleeps good at night. But he says the full stomach of the rich, they're restless. They can't sleep. And we think, if I had money, I'd have some peace. And what Solomon says is, look, a lot of times those that are poor, those that don't have a lot of money, those that aren't thinking about all the the dollars, they just know, here's how much I have, and that's what it is. They sleep good at night. But people that have to start thinking okay, am I making the right amount, and am I going to be able to hit this goal, and am I, am I able to manage the money that I have, and they start to have a restlessness. Even though their stomach is full, the rich, their stomach is full, they're able to have all this stuff, and they're able to eat anything they want, but at night, can't sleep well. At night, they can't, they can't sleep well because of the money. It's more complicated now, and more things that could go wrong with it, and more uh, problems of people that could take it away, and and a third one is this, we, we, we look at money and think it'll give us a sense of security, a sense of safety. So a lot of times, even for some of you, maybe you hear those first two and think, yeah, some people think money will bring them peace or it'll solve their problems. And, and those people, yeah, they spend, uh, look at the credit card debt. Yeah, those people, they spend all their money and those are the bad people. And those are the, the dumb people that just, they spend all their money. But I save my money. I, I protect my money. I'm good with my money. I'm not like those people over there. I use my money and, and I, I've got it piled up. I've got a nest egg, I've got a retirement, I've got savings. And one of the things he says is we look to money to be a sense of security and a sense of refuge and a sense of protection and a sense of a sense that because I've got this money, everything will be okay. You know, there's a lot of people that have a lot of money and they don't spend very much of it. But that doesn't mean that money's not a problem. She says, if you look to money to give you a sense of peace and security, and safety, that everything will be okay because I've got this in my account. You don't know what will go wrong. You don't know what will happen. You might lose that money. He talks about people that invest in certain accounts and in a bad business venture, and it goes down. And You may have worked on saving money that you have, and then you have unexpected medical problems. You may have worked on saving money that you have, and, and you have unexpected car problems or house problems, or you may have worked on saving money that you have. And, and then, I, mean, I, have some, I know this is an old reference, but I had an uncle who lost everything when Enron happened. If Those of you are familiar with Enron, company, if you're not, it doesn't matter, just the man. They stole everything, okay? <laughs> but he says this, look, if you think money is your security... If you think money is, is going to give you that sense of safety and nothing will go wrong because you have it, says that's not the case. You might invest in something that totally flops, somebody might take it away from you, that money is not ultimately reliable as a sense of security. Or you might have it all safe and secure, and then you die. So it's all safe and secure, but you're not safe and secure. you're dead. So he says, look, there's there's a few things that that we search for out of money, that it'll solve our problems, that it'll bring us peace, that it'll give us safety, and ultimately it doesn't work. And and here's here's the thing, whether or not you have a lot of money or you have a little money, whether or not you consider yourself wealthy or you consider yourself middle class or you consider yourself poor, wherever we are on the picture, the issue is this, that we desire The future that money will bring to us. We're here and we believe if I have a little bit more money, I'll have a future. A future of peace or a future of comfort without problems or a future of safety or a a future of relaxation or or whatever it is. We, We desire the future that money promises to us. Why is the desire for money so powerful? It's not just that we want the money. It's not just that we want dollar bills in our hands. We don't all want to take a selfie picture you know, with a bunch of cash. That's not why. It's the future that it promises to us. It's the future that it says that we can have. But, but then he says this he paints this horrible picture. He paints this horrible pu- picture of, of somebody always longing for the future, somebody always longing for what money will bring to them, and yet not satisfied. I'm going to skip ahead a few verses, and he says this in Ecclesiastes 6. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, meaninglessness, myth. or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Talking about what he said earlier, that in some ways it's better to not even be born than to live a life that has no joy. Even though he should live a thousand years, so if you get all the money you want, all the honor you want from that wealth, all the pleasure and desire that you had ever wanted, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Talking about this idea that no matter how much this person gets, they're not enjoying it because their appetite's not satisfied. They just need a little bit more. If I just have 2,000 more, 3,000 more, my appetite, though I'm filling and filling and filling, not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what is the poor man who, have, who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes, what you actually see, what you have, than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So here's what he says. Here, here's what he says is going on. Here, here's what he says of why the desire for money is so powerful. He paints this horrible picture of somebody that has it all. They had everything that money could give them, everything that they wanted, all the money they could ever want, but they couldn't enjoy it. Why? Because there's a future that money promises that's still out there. A little more comfort, a little more security, a little more honor, a little more happiness that money promises to us a future. A future without problems, a future of peace, a a future of security, but there's always a little more. You can always have a little bit more of what it promises. Think about this for our lives. Do you remember when you got your first job? Maybe some of you are still waiting, but do you remember when you got your first job? (laughs) Remember when you got your first job and whatever you were making, maybe it was like nine bucks an hour, and you're like, this is awesome. I've got money. I can buy stuff. And and then maybe you got a promotion or, or maybe you got your first salary job and you were making 30K or something. And you're like, this is great. But if you were to have your first job now, you wouldn't be satisfied with that. At every level, we keep going and keep wanting a little bit more. Remember the first house you moved into, or the first apartment you moved into, and you were on your own and you were like, this is great. I got my place. I'm the king of this castle, you know of this studio and then a little bit time went by and you need a little bit bigger house and a little bit more space and a little bit more castle or the same with a car or the same with remember maybe when you went on vacation for the first time and I remember my wife and I stayed at a hotel right when we you know around when we first got married that I mean I would I wouldn't I would bring a gun if I was going to go back there again you know (laughs) But I was like, I was like called Alpine Lodge or something, something that sounds really Swiss, but is a lot more gangster. And it was like, this is great, but no, I'm going to die. And I would never stay there again, even though I loved it at the time. And we can always experience something, but here's what can happen. You can get everything you ever wanted, but what if you don't enjoy it? What if you have everything you ever wanted, but you're looking it then over here? And Solomon says, this is part of why money has such a grip on us, is there's a future it promises to us, a future it promises to us. But here's the thing about the future, you never get to it. There's always a further place in time that you can go to. Once you arrive in the future, there's a, f- I'm sorry to get all philosophical on you, once you arrive in the future, there's a future that's still beyond it. He says, money promises a future, and the appetite's not satisfied, because once it eats, it says, I can get more. Look, this is not just true with what he said. This is still true today for those that have gotten everything. There, there's a man that, um, that uh, created this company that some of you um, maybe know and some of you probably don't if you don't have kids. But there's a company called Minecraft where it, you basically build these cities and blocks and things and um, all these different stuff. It's like The Sims, uh, if that reference maybe helps a little bit more. But So you, you build all this stuff. And this guy created this company. And he sells it to Microsoft. makes billions of dollars. And he starts having these lavish parties in LA. And this is like an infinity pool with a DJ and he invites all these. So this is total nerd dude, right? That has all the, he invites all these celebrities over and living it up. He has this giant candy wall that he builds in his house, which is pretty amazing. And, and he just goes all out billions of dollars. And, and then he begins to say that, and this is what you would probably think that he would look like. And he says, I've never felt more isolated the man who sold My, Minecraft to Microsoft for $2.5 billion reveals the empty, that's the same word in Ecclesiastes, that vanity, that emptiness, that the vanity, the emptiness of success. Or a couple weeks ago, this woman won the lottery. This is in the Washington Post. Uh, this is February 15th. She won the lottery at 17. This is in Europe. If you're like, how did that happen? She won the lottery at 17. Now she blames Euro Millions officials for ruining her life. And says this, the first thing that Jane Park bought after winning one million British pounds in the Euro Millions Lottery in 2013 was a Louis Vuitton handbag. Then a chihuahua named Princess, (laughs) of course. And then some shoes. But here's what she says. People look at me and think, I wish I had her lifestyle. I wish I had her money, she added. But they don't realize the extent of my stress. I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. What is my purpose in life? This is very just channeling Ecclesiastes without even knowing it. Or third, there was an article studying people that that gain wealth in the week. What does wealth do to your soul? And it says this, he asked these rich people how happy they were at any given moment. Then he asked them how much money they would need to be even happier. And all of them said they needed two to three times more than they had to feel happier, says Norton. Why is the desire for money so powerful? Because it promises us a future. If I just get to here, I'll be happier. If I just get a little more money, my problems will be a little more solved. If I just get a little more money, I'll have a little more honor. Maybe a little more people will like me. If I just get a little more money, my nest egg will be a little bigger. There'll be a little more safety. I'll be a little more able to handle whatever life throws at me. If I just get a little bit more money, I'll have a little bit more peace of mind. And what he says is there's this hunger, this appetite, this drive that's always looking to the future. And even though we've heard a thousand times that money can't buy happiness, even though all the studies and all the fields agree on that, there's something that money offers to us, whether it's comfort or safety or peace, that we want so deeply. And if we just had a little bit more money, we would have it. And he says, here's a a horrible picture of life. He paints this horrible picture, and other people have experienced it, and you've experienced it that we can look at the future and miss right here. We can look at the future and thus not enjoy what's right in front of us. So how do we, how do we break this powerful desire for money? We know that we have it. We know it's something that we wrestle with, even though we've heard that we, that we shouldn't. How, how do we break that powerful desire for money and the future that it promises to us? And he wants to help. He wants to help Guide us to experience something free. And maybe, maybe, you think, maybe you think this. Maybe you think, okay, how do I break the powerful desire for money? Here's how I do it. I'm at church. I'm supposed to give it away. I'm supposed to not think about money. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be poor. I'm supposed to uh, just um, not have anything and be less materialistic and get rid of it all. And, and that's what I'm supposed to do. That's how the desire will break. But that's not what he says. Here's what he says. Going back to 18 through 20, he says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, saying he won't stress out and worry and and be consumed with uh, the future, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You know what he says to do? How do we break the powerful desire for money? This is amazing. He says, here's what you do. You enjoy the good gifts that God has given to you. He says you enjoy the good. If you want to break the desire for just a little bit more in the future that money promises, you know how to break that? You enjoy right now what you have instead of what you don't have. If you want to break the power that money promises just a little bit more, just a little bit bigger house, just a little bit nicer car, just a little bit more promotion, just a little bit more wealth, just a little bit more in savings, just a little. If you want to break that, here's what he says: you do. You enjoy what you've been given. You delight in what you've been given instead of focusing on what you haven't been given. You stop, and you pause, and you eat, and you drink, and you, when you're working, you, you think about your work and, and how it's a gift from God, and you, and you think about if you have wealth, if you have possession, you think about that, and you, you stop and you say, thank you, enjoy. I'm, I'm going to enjoy what I've been given. fill your heart and your mind with what you've been given instead of what you haven't been given. You see, the problem is discontent with what we have. The problem is longing for a future instead of accepting our lot, as he says, instead of accepting the thing that we actually have, instead of always looking at something better out there. This is something, whether you have a little bit of money or a lot of money, clearly, that we all wrestle with. And he says, instead of thinking about what's out there, think about what you have and what you've been given, and soak it up. I love this. This is God is look. God is a giver. God is generous creator. God. God made the mountains. I was hiking in the mountains, not because I was looking for treasure, but I was hiking in the mountains yesterday. God made those mountains. God made them. Many of you were probably doing mountainous activities this weekend, right? God made them. And some of you had a good meal this weekend. God made that stuff. God is not somebody that is trying to take away the joy in our lives. God is a creator. And God longs for us to experience joy. And God is a giver that says, look, here's part of how the power of wealth, the power of money can be broken, is instead of longing for this thing out there, enjoy what you have. And some of you think, well, well, I would enjoy it if I could have a little bit nicer of a meal or a little, I couldn't go to the mountains because I didn't have gas. Or, but okay, there's always something out there. I don't have a boat. I don't have a jet. There's always something out there. But right here, enjoy what you've been given, he says. God is a giver that has given things to us to enjoy, to delight in. God says, I made those things. I gave those things. I want. Look, God wants your joy. God wants your joy. That's why the world is filled with such amazing and beautiful things. God wants us to enjoy what we have instead of what we don't. God wants us to focus on what we've been given instead of what we haven't been given. To think about our lot. To think about what we have. You know know what this means? This means for many of us what we need to build into our lives is anchor points, which is times that we stop. Maybe this is before you're about to go to the mountains, or before you're about to have a great meal, or before you're about to listen to some great music, or before you're about to hang out with friends, or before you're about to enjoy, to stop and go, God, you have given this to me. Thank you. Thank you for this gift. And, and then after to do the same thing, one of the things my wife and I do is Saturday is our Sabbath day and spend time resting and doing mountains and stuff that fills our hearts. And, and at the end of Saturday, we pray and pray God, th- and just kind of go through the things and say, God, thank you for this and for this and for this. We need to have anchor points in our life where we are taking in the joy that God has given to us and saying, thank you for this. Thank you that you've given this to me. And some of us need to make sure that we are taking a day of our weeks to rest and relax and enjoy God and enjoy the provision that He's given to us. Instead of just working a thousand miles to get more money, instead of just uh, filling our schedules with all sorts of things, to be able to stop and pause and slow down and say, God, you're a giver that gives good things and wants me to enjoy. He says, this is one of the antidotes to our grip of money that's on our heart, is to enjoy what God's given. Look, I think this is a sermon application all of us can get behind, right? Sometimes it's like, I'm not going to do that. But look, this is saying, eat a donut, you know, (laughs) eat a steak. This is one that you should all say, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to listen to what, you know, the pastor said today. You know, this is this is an easy one says, go enjoy what God has given to you. And that passage is filled with God, 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 God. It mentions him several times in that part of the passage versus any other part of uh, the chapter to say, focus on God. Look at God and be thankful to him for what he's given to you. That's part of what begins to break the grip of money. That when we begin to be full now with what we have, when we begin to accept our lot of what we have, instead of looking to the future, when we begin to focus on the things that he has given to us, instead of what he hasn't given to us. Look, if you are a millionaire, and you found the treasure and didn't tell anybody about it, if you're a millionaire enjoy the millions that God has given to you. And if you have $20 in your pocket and somebody else's Netflix account, which I think we all have, right? (laughs) Nobody actually owns a Netflix account. (laughs) (laughs) Then enjoy that. Enjoy your $20. Go to McDonald's and buy a dollar ice cream cone and watch Netflix and say, thank you, God, for this ice cream. And a second, third cousin's Netflix account, you know, and enjoy it, and say, this is good. Eat, and drink, and watch Netflix, and enjoy what God has given to you, whatever that is, instead of looking at what you don't have, accepting your lot. This is what breaks the power of money on us. This is what helps us know that God isn't holding out on us, That there's something in the future that's better that he hasn't given to us yet. That if we just had, then life would be good. This is part of how we know. Because see, sometimes we think, if you're a Christian, you can think, God's holding out on me in some way. He hasn't given to me what he's given to other people. This is true with money and relationships and all sorts of stuff. That God hasn't given to me what he's given to other people. God's holding out on me in some way. and Then we miss what we have. So, So here's a question. How do we know that he's not holding out on us? Why should we believe? Why, why should we take the mindset of, I'm going to accept what I have, if that's a lot or if that's a little, if God's given me wealth and power, he says, or if God has given me no wealth and no power, why accept what God has given and not long for something more, thinking that God is holding out on us a little bit, and if I get to hear, then that's how I know God's blessing me. Why, why, why should we think The life you have now and the stuff you have now and the money you have now, why should we think God's not holding out on you? God didn't mess up. God didn't give someone better than what he gave you. Why should we think like that? Why should we believe that he's not holding out on us? And I want to go back to what he says in this passage. He says, "And picture, picture this story. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. All the things that we are looking for in money that we hope we'll have in the future. Wealth and possessions and honor that people would like us or we would feel successful with the money that we have. And he says there's a man whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor. So he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God has not given the power to actually enjoy those things, but instead somebody else does. Somebody else, a stranger, enjoys them. He says, picture a person that has everything you long for out of money. Wealth, power, possessions, and honor. But they actually aren't able to enjoy them. Instead, someone else enjoys them in their place. This is the very picture the Bible tells us about Jesus. You know what the Bible says about Jesus? It says this. Paul talking to the church in Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that though he had power, that though he had wealth, that though he had honor, that though he had possessions, that though he had all of the stuff in the future that we think and hope money will give to us, that though he was rich in all of those ways, yet for your sake, for our sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That you, that us, that strangers, would be able to enjoy. You see, what the Bible says about Jesus is he chose the great evil. Solomon describes this picture of a great evil of someone that has it all, and instead of them being able to enjoy it, somebody else does in their place. He says, this is a great evil. But What the Bible says about Jesus is he willingly took on that very great evil. That He said, yes, I do have it all. I am rich. I have the honor and the status and the, the wealth and the power, and that God himself emptied himself and became a man, he came to this earth, and was willing to set aside what Solomon said would be a great evil to do, Jesus willingly did for us, for a stranger that we would enjoy. And, and to become rich, he's not talking about what the guy in Florida did with the $7 billion, but to experience the wealth of relationship with God, to experience all that, that He is to us. You see, here's how we can know right now. How do we break the powerful desire for money? Solomon says it's this way. You, you accept your lot. You enjoy what God's given you instead of what He hasn't given you. You say, this is what He's given, so I enjoy it. I don't need more money. I don't need fake money. I don't need to use the credit card's money. I, don't need to, I, I can just accept this. He says, but how can we accept that? How can we know God's not holding out on us? And when we come to Jesus, what we see is he willingly gave up everything for us. He willingly set aside. He willingly chose the great evil. And we can trust his character then. We can look and go, that kind of person isn't holding out on me. That's what what Paul says later to the church in Rome. He uses that logic and says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if we've seen that he's for us, who could be against us? He who, talking about God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, he gave us his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that doesn't mean all the things out here that money says it's going to give us. It means how, how, how will he not, how, how, this is how we know that the life we have is the life he meant for us to have. That we can accept the lot we've been given because he's been so generous to us already. Let me close with this. One last thing, what does a life free from the power of money then look like? What if we could live content? What if we could trust, this is my lot, you've given it to me, I enjoy it, I see your character and see that you chose the great evil for me, so I know you're not holding out on me. What would that create in us? And here's the last thing, Paul, Paul says this, really pulling all of these pieces together telling Timothy, who is a pastor, here's what I want you to teach people that have money. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud and arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, the future that it will provide, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, to not miss out on what they have what they have been given. And here, here's, here's what this, whoops, sorry. Can you put it back for me? My thing's messing up. Um, that's fine, you can just leave it there. Here's what, here's what he says, this creates. That if we can say, I'm not looking at the future that money provides for me, and instead, Right here in this moment, I enjoy what God's given to me. I enjoy what he has blessed with me. I'm blessed me with. That we, we, we enjoy his gifts, which fills our heart with a love of him. Because if you start to enjoy the things that God has given you, instead of looking at over here, you go, God, thank you for this. That helps us to know how good he is. And when we know how good he is, we actually then start to care less about the gifts start to care less about the stuff, and so then we become ready and willing to share it, to want to give it away. You see, there's this cycle that happens where God gives to us, and we go, this is so good, God, thank you. And when we really do that, we love him, and we go, God, thank you that you are not holding out on me, you're good to me, you've given me everything. But when that happens in our heart, we don't need that stuff as much anymore. So then we're, it doesn't mean we don't enjoy it, but we're also willing to give it away and be generous. See, the life that this dynamic creates is one where we can be content with what we have, but also generous with others. Where we are at rest and at peace. Where money doesn't have a grip on us because our hope is in God. Where money doesn't have a grip on us because we accept what God has given to us. And it creates a dynamic of rest and generosity. And when we take communion, this is exactly what we remember, that God is a generous Giving God. The God's a God that wants our joy, that wants our souls to be satisfied, to not always be longing for something more, but to say, Thank you, Jesus. I trust your character. You were willing on the cross to take away my sins, to make me rich spiritually in you, to take away my sinful poverty of life without you. You were willing to do that for me, and so I can trust you. I know that you're a good generous, giving God that is for me and loves me. That's what we remember when we take communion. And then we go and we live our lives and we enjoy what he's given to us and we live generously because it doesn't have a hold on us. So let's take communion, let's pray, and let's sing songs to this God. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a God that is filled with generosity, that you're a God that is filled with grace and mercy that you don't expect us to give to you before you give to us. That you're a God that does truly want our deepest joy. And Jesus, you were willing to give up all that you had, the Bible says. You're willing to set aside all of your honor and and status and comfort to come here to save us, to bring us into your family. Thank you for this good news, this gospel. And I pray, God, that as we um, think about these things, that we sing these things, that you would drive these truths even deeper into our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.